1: There's a part of the LinkedIn algorithm that somebody who's a a new connection is more likely to see your content for the next week or two weeks. So they'll lovingly accept it um, because they're active and they're trying to grow. So your strategy of going out and connecting with those active people makes a lot of sense, regardless of their their account size. But you know, once you get into the the thousands or ten thousands, it's like there's no no point in you doing that anymore. You shouldn't talk to other people who have large audiences
0: and collaborate and work together or. Are you up to speed on effective cross-channel customer engagement? If not, you could be losing customers and missing out on serious ROI. Visit brazecom TMM to learn what customer engagement is and how it sets brands like yours apart just get right,
1: better and better content that goes viral more often.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today, I have Neil. We're trying to get Neil on the pod for a little bit, but I'm glad he finally can make it. He's heating up in Seattle, so everybody feel bad for him right now.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm actually Canadian, so I'm on an island near Seattle. I just figured that if I mentioned the city of Victoria, An American would have no idea what I was talking
0: about. So, I love it. I want to ask you, first, how did you get into marketing? And then we could go into our chat today.
1: Yeah, I'd say I was basically dragged kicking and screaming into marketing. So I actually did mechanical engineering. was planning to go to med school. Decided that that wasn't going to give me the lifestyle to explore. And I ended up teaching myself to become a programmer so that I could start companies one day. I did freelance programming for a number of years. When you do a lot of freelance programming, what happens is that you work on a lot on a lot of people's ideas that never go anywhere because they fumble before they even launch or they, you know, they have word conflict with their co-founder and it never goes anywhere. So I kept building things that never saw the light of day, essentially. And I wanted to start something, but I was completely reliant on some sort of business or marketing focused founder because i was a just a programmer and then uh one day one of my friends from high school julian shapiro contacted me and he was like hey i keep being asked to be people's cmo i don't want to work for anybody ever again do you want to start a growth agency with me you know you can do some of the technical of setting up landing pages and stuff and in the process you'll learn marketing so that's how I got into it, I was like, sweet, I'll do this and then I'll learn how to grow companies. And then if one day I want to start my own. And what started is us essentially just going to do a small consultancy together. It kind of grew into us hiring a, a team for Bell Curve and then starting the man curve and that getting to YC. And uh, it's been like a six year journey of me changing my identity as being a programmer. And now at this point in the last year, I've realized that wait, I have more experience as a marketer than I do as a programmer now. So I should probably rethink my, my entire self-identity. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into marketing. And I would say that I have this pretty strong opinion that people think that marketing is really easy because it's really approachable. Whereas programming they know is hard because it's not approachable. They look at it and they're like, I have no idea how to do this. Uh, I'm paying this expert. I'll let them pay charge whatever they want because this looks hard and I, I accept that I don't know it. But I think marketing is approachable because it's things like you're writing stuff, I can write stuff, I can make a landing page, whatever. But it's way more complicated because there's just so much to it, there's human psychology, there's infinite numbers of ways to grow. So in ways I think it's harder than programming because there's no like obvious I'm doing this right, I'm not doing this right, or I'm doing the right thing or going in the right direction. But it's approachable. So people have opinions when they hire a marketing expert. So
0: I always say people see marketing everywhere. So they assume, oh, I understand good marketing because I yeah. see it everywhere. Where well, you see websites everywhere, but you don't see code everywhere. So it's like, yes. oh okay, like so it's like, oh, that website looks cool. That I can make it look good, but they don't see the back end of a a website every single day. So like what people see, they assume is easy. But I want to go into personal branding with you. You built, I mean, Demand Curve and all the stuff you built have been built, started off being built off of Julian's personal brand. And I want to talk about that journey. So Julian was the face. I remember like four or five years ago, Julian was the face of The Curve. So yes. how did the journey go from building up his personal brand to then now having to build up multiple personal brands and The Curve? Julian had a decent audience from
1: having done various weird things on the internet, like he launched an animation library using JavaScript previously, and then somehow, geniusly, he became VP of Marketing from launching a programming library. But uh, in the early days of us starting Bell Curve, he spent a ton of time creating what was called his, uh, his growth guide. And this is kind of like a key piece of content, which it was getting hundreds of thousands to a million views per year. It kind of established him as an expert in growth. So people would read that and they would wanna work with, with Bellcurve. Uh, well, specifically they wanna work with him and he was operating through Bellcurve. I mean, at the time, I think personal brands were not seen as being like a great thing or so we kind of spent the whole time trying to like, okay, it's not, it's not Julian, it's bell curve or it's it's not Julian, it's demand curve, trying to build up that sort of brand equity. So we tried to, we were posting things through that and we just kind of used Julian's kind of notoriety to kind of boost that up. And, you know, he also didn't necessarily want to be the face of it. It just kind of happened just because he was already somewhat known. So yeah, we built it up over five, six years. And then within the last year, I realized that's kind of the the personal brand shift of people ultimately people trust people and they don't trust companies. They want to know the people behind a the brand. They want to know the values behind the brand uh that they support. So basically realized that the strategy that we've been following for five years was wrong and that somebody would need to kind of step up and start doing things through their own personal brand set. So, so I, I took that on and I'm constantly encouraging other people on the team to, to do that because ultimately my opinions or my things doesn't represent the complexity of everybody at the team. Um, we do various things. Marketing is an extremely broad subject. I can't speak intelligently or confidently about all of them. So ultimately, personal brands is just, it's, it's insane watching people like The Rock launch this insane tequila business, or Ryan Reynolds famously bought a telecom company, just added his personal brand, did some amazing marketing for it, and then like flipped it for some huge multiple within a, a year or two. And kind of the the joy of doing it as a founder too. It's kind of like yes, it's maybe if the brand that you're building is somewhat reliant on your personal brand, it maybe you can't get it as as nice of a multiple on the on the brand if you sell it. But your personal brand and your notoriety stick with you for the rest of your life. So if you start the next business, it'll be easier to launch. It'll be easier to fundraise. It'll be easier to meet the people you need to, because people will want will like you and want to know you and trust you. So. It's one of the highest leverage things, particularly founders can do.
0: I was going to ask you how you are balancing because I think you, even though you use your personal brand well on demand curve, you it's a good balance of like pushing up demand curve and also pushing up your personal brand because sometimes people go all in and it's like the name the media company is all their name and then they can't separate it both, but right. you were able to take Julian and then they make it you because demand curve did have a brand name as well. So how are you building both at the same time? I remember talking to Sean Pori about this and he said that
1: it's different depending on the kind of brand that you have. So for marketing millennials, I think it's good that it's actually, you know, it's not Daniel Murray's uh, marketing newsletter, right? Because it's a media business. For the example that Sean used, like he started Milk Road. It was one of the fastest growing newsletters of all time. It was all crypto. And he was like, one day I want to be able to sell this or one day I want to have other writers for this. I don't want to forever be writing about crypto five years from now. It doesn't say I didn't want to make it Sean's crypto newsletter. So and I, th- I think that generally applies to, to media brands, but you know, if you're, if you're the founder of a SaaS business though, you know, maybe you want to lean into your own personal brand so that it can grow your, your SAS company. Um, because ultimately like the, the value of the SaaS business hopefully is the software and everything that, you know, if there was some acquire they'd be buying it. So in terms of having both, I'd say that like, like it's somewhat complicated for me because I essentially have three companies. So there's Demand Curve, which teaches generally earlier stage founders and marketers how to grow companies. It's kind of a more do it yourself or done, done with you sort of idea. And then we have a, an agency, which is kind of done for you. And kind of the buyer for that is generally later stage. And then Unignorable teaches people how to grow their own personal audience. So it's very hard for me to talk about all three and I can't necessarily represent all three in my content consistently. So each kind of like brand sort of needs to also stand up and share its, its own sort of unique, this is who it's for, this is what it does. And I imagine I'm not unique in that where pe- people have you know multiple projects or something that they're working on. So it's becoming clear on who you're serving for each one, uh, what you're doing for them, and then creating content that serves specifically them. And then, I, when it's important to share specific things for a specific brand, I'll I'll do that through my
0: personal one as well. What are some tips you give to founders on why they should start their personal brand? like, what is what what is like the selling points you give them?
1: So, as I as I talked about, there there's the kind of increased optionality. So, if you you sell, you can easily do the next thing um worse your business fails you can do the next thing but ultimately it's also so much in business is just just knowing the right people too particularly if you're a b2b brand it's like meeting the right people for partnerships or or anything um I also know somebody who's very active on LinkedIn as a D2C founder and he says that he mostly uses that so he can talk to like manufacturers and partner and and those sorts of partners so even though his audience isn't necessarily buying his product through LinkedIn he's still getting the value of through connections and everything next you're more likely to be able to raise money well just because you know investors are going to hear about you and like you and trust you Um, you're going to increase sales particularly if you're a service-based business like if people like the the way that you the way that you think or you highlight the wins that you've had for your customers or whatever they're going to want to work with you, particularly if you're in a service where it's like fairly commoditized, like, you know, there's so many different things that sell, that run Facebook ads for you. They're going to go for the one that they trust is going to do the job the best. So if they have heard of you and they know of you, then they're more likely to choose you, even if you charge a bit more. Yeah. And then you also just meet really cool, smart people who are doing it in the process that make you a better person and challenge you and and like you get invited on podcasts you get invited to speak all kinds of stuff like it's it's pretty insane and i i would argue it's pretty much one of the, the highest leverage things that a founder could be doing with their time assuming that the product is already made and and all of the those things
0: where are some places you recommend people starting to like grow their personal brand they asked, like, if I came to you and said, hey, I'm looking to start my personal brand today, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to create a name for myself. Where where should I go? Where should I start? How should I start growing it? I'd say
1: LinkedIn is probably the kind of best opportunity right now. I think we're both fairly biased in that, though. Twitter is just so much harder to grow on, particularly since uh, all the algorithm changes in the last year. Basically everyone I know who was growing well has essentially stopped growing well. Yeah. Particularly if you're in B2B, if you're doing service work or anything like that, it's just like LinkedIn is kind of a, an obvious opportunity. It's like people are there yeah. you know, in, a, in a business mindset. It's uh, very common to share your your knowledge or your achievements or your uh, your wins for your customers. I like even talked to Sahil Bloom about this. His audience on Twitter is almost a million people. His, he even said this when his LinkedIn was only 100,000 people. He gets more actual like business value from conversions and everything from LinkedIn. Yeah, whereas Twitter is kind of, it's almost like it's so hard to grow on Twitter that you're in this sort of exclu- exclusive cool kids club where somebody else who uh, is connected or or known sees that you have a large Twitter following they're going to more likely reach out and talk to you. Whereas like, there's still this thing probably for so long where LinkedIn was kind of lame. And you know, the people that were posting four years ago on on LinkedIn, I think people were kind of like chuckling at like, why are you doing that? You're weird. So there's like still this, you're not like cool if you've got like a large LinkedIn following. Uh, And like some of the, Some people that are huge on Twitter still like don't even go to LinkedIn. Like they don't even have a LinkedIn account. Like you're not going to see Elon with a LinkedIn account or something just because they they think it's so lame. But ultimately, I think it's it's way easier to grow on. There's more value to it, and you know it's kind of one of the strengths of the platform versus say something like YouTube. It's like one thing I. I both hate and love about social media is that you post something and it's basically gone 24 hours. Nobody's ever going to see it again. So there's, there's kind of a a liberty to just keep like testing things out and saying things and you are refining. Whereas if you like put something on YouTube, somebody can keep finding it. But the benefit with YouTube is that you can have a video that's been out there for three years, suddenly get, get traction. Or some, you have, say you have a podcast guest, that comes on here, it goes somewhat viral, you get 100,000 plus views on it, people are then likely going to watch another one of your videos, whereas if I have a viral LinkedIn post, nobody's gonna like go and through my list of previous posts and click through and read them and like them. So I think kind of the the two places that are the best to invest in are LinkedIn, kind of get started, it's easier, there's value. YouTube, kind of in the long term, because you can monetize it directly. There's last, there's staying power. I think video is extremely powerful, but ultimately, video is just so much harder to start with. So I, I'd kind of advise start LinkedIn, just write some text, figure out that process. And then, you know, you can complicate it with a camera and lights and microphones and all that
0: later. Brands like yours send billions of marketing messages every day. It's no wonder attention spans are shrinking and it's harder than ever to keep customers engaged. So how can you stay ahead of the curve? You can start by embracing great customer engagement with Braze. Visit braze.com backslash TMM to learn how you can harness world-class marketing tools for cross-channel engagement and how it will set you apart from the competition. I mean, I'm definitely biased. LinkedIn does have the best growth. And I've also seen it's easy to take people off LinkedIn versus Twitter. Like, I've seen a lot of people who do threads and stuff on that on Twitter, and they'll get a million views and get 200 subscribers off of it. But on LinkedIn, you can get that off of like a post with 50,000 views, 100. So I, I did one post
1: to promote our uh, unignorable cohort. The first one, I did the same posts across Twitter and LinkedIn, Twitter. I benefited from a bunch of people that I knew that, you know, commented, retweeted like Sahil and got it over a million views. The LinkedIn one got maybe 20 or 30,000 impressions. 95% of the people who waitlisted were from LinkedIn. And 30% of the sales for the entire cohort came from the LinkedIn post. Uh, just the one post. So yeah, I, I find it so funny. Like I'll have a, a tweet do somewhat. Well, it gets a hundred thousand plus views or whatever. I'll get like 10 followers. If I have something like that go off in LinkedIn. Like I'm probably getting a thousand and it's probably people DMing me or, or, or whatever. So Twitter, you seem to be able to get views easier, but it doesn't seem
0: to translate
1: to a lot of value.
0: To me, LinkedIn is the networking party and then I mean, the networking event, like the conference and then Twitter is like the, the party, like it's like, okay. That's like the way the cool kids with air quotes, cool kids are hanging out. And you have to be in a club to be able to hang out there. If you don't have status or something, it's harder to win. It's, it's, it's somebody I know, it's
1: like he's got 100,000 followers on, on Twitter and he, he had a thread do go somewhat viral and he had a NHL hockey player reach out to him and ask for his help in like writing a thread. And, you know, it's like tons of people across all kinds of in- industry use Twitter. LinkedIn is very much like I'm kind of a weird business or t- tech sort of person you know, you're not going to be able to connect with an NHL player that you really like, but I mean, ultimately to build my business, I care about connecting with other founders. Right. I don't necessarily, it's like, it'd be cool for me to connect with a NHL player, but ultimately it's probably not going to help me. So yeah, there's kind of a big difference there. And like Instagram too, it's like Instagram's extremely hard to grow on. You know, it's really hard to kind of drive it. You can't include a link in a post I mean, that's why I think a lot of things on there that do really well are, like, memes and jokes. Like, my entire Instagram usage is I just find funny things and send them to my friends. I don't even think I like the posts. I just, like, send them to a friend and then move on. I do that for 10 minutes a day.
0: The value I see on um, Instagram is in the stories, um, not necessarily the posts. Yes. Because it's the one place where you can have less friction live posts. And do as multi- more at one time. I don't really know. Like Twitter, you can kind of do that, but like when they used to have whatever Twitter stories were called, like right for like two five seconds that they were alive. Right. Um, I actually
1: I forgot that they even
0: had them until you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's the only platform besides like maybe Snapchat, but not many like people like millennials are on Snapchat, so it's like right. but you can do a literally like announcements and right. it's not because like in linkedin you have to if you do an announcement it has to be like big you have to like put thought in it where like you could just throw up a hey right. i'm doing this and dm me if you want to hang out or something like that it's a less gated way
1: algorithmically gated way of connecting with your already existing followers i guess because mm, i mean that's kind of the annoying part of It's like, yeah, you, you have over a hundred thousand followers on, on LinkedIn, Daniel. And it's like, if you wanted to, you know, market, if marketing millennials launched something and you launch an event or something, you still have to like, come up with a really clever hook and post or story that will still get picked up by the algorithm so that you can promote it. Whereas, yeah, I guess having the Instagram, you can just throw up a story and a bunch of people are going to see
0: it and click on it and go. So yeah, I mean, uh, for example, I I put up something like, "Hey, I'm the like, giving away a ticket to my conference," and mm-hmm. I got like a uh, two hundred DMs. Where like I couldn't get that on LinkedIn if I tried. Like only if I made a viral post that was able to get it.
1: Uh-huh. Right. that's interesting. Where where do you get most of the subscribers for marketing millennials across? Because you guys are a lot active on many channels, is there one that kind of leads to more than others? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. LinkedIn
0: is 55 to 60% of the subscribers out of oh, the wow. online. Well, wow. It's way easier to take someone off LinkedIn, um, where, like you said, I think one, people are in a learning by, and I'm learning business mindset, but also like LinkedIn, there's ways to get organic views that are way easier than right. Um, like even on a video platform, you have to like, figure out a way to like, get someone to like go LinkedIn, LinkedIn bio, like the friction is way easier on LinkedIn LinkedIn to do. So right. So how did you start slowly growing your personal brand? Like, what were like your first steps in your head? Like, how am I going to get my name out there after, after I've been in the shadows for a little bit?
1: Before I answer it, I'll say that basically anyone that's grown fast, I think has some sort of unfair advantage. You know, even if they've happened to work in copywriting or marketing for a long time, they, they've, they've already got that. Or for example, our, our most successful student of our unignorable cohort right now, he's Say like 120,000 followers after six months. And that's because he was ranked CEO of the year. He's able to barter his his skills, coaching skills with big names and they'll, in exchange of him coaching them, they'll engage with his stuff. So he's able to leverage those relationships. So I'd say that my unfair advantages in that is, um, one is that because we had spent so much effort and time building up demand curves brands, you know, whereas most people on LinkedIn, they might change their like headline or tagline to be uh, kind of very customer focused. I can, you know, I help you do this or whatever. I help founders get from zero to three million dollars or whatever in revenue. I felt like I just needed to highlight that I was founder of Demand Curve, and if if somebody knew Demand Curve, they were more likely to just more likely to follow me. So there was that. I I, I would leverage. Demand Curves content, like I would share some of the things that went, that went viral on Twitter using Demand Curves content, i turn it into LinkedIn Carousel, put it on there, and kind of just attach myself to a brand that a lot of people already knew. Second is actually like a long time ago, four, three, four years ago, we had been using essentially LinkedIn automation tools to send connection requests. And at the time, you could send 100 connection requests a day. And we did this so we could grow our, our marketing community. I just type connect to people that were, were founders and we then DM them. You know, I posted a little bit. I had a few things go viral, but I, when I started posting in September, I had, you know, 10,000 followers, 8,000 of which came from connection connection, automated connection requests. And I had done it somewhat strategically where I was like, okay, we're in YC. Basically there's a culture in YC that if you do not interact or be nice to other YC founders, you're a horrible person. So I made lists of all the YC founders and I sent them connection requests and they almost all accepted. Uh, I was like, okay, who, who is most likely to accept your connection requests? I was like somebody living in my city, a founder living in Vancouver is more likely to accept it. A CMO in Vancouver is more likely to accept it. Or just Canadians in general are more likely to accept Another Canadian being online because you know they mostly see Americans, right? So I was just strategic in in doing that, and honestly, yeah, I cheated. So I had I when I, when I started, I had ten thousand followers, and I had a brand that people already knew, and I then just had to also use the marketing skills that I already had to write write posts that people liked, and you know, from creating content for Demand Curve for years, we also already learned that kind of the things that people like and find useful and then attach some sort of like affinity for the creator is something that teaches them something, especially a very hard subject that's broken down in a way that's simple. So I've kind of just continued that sort of idea into my content. And then, um, you know, I programmer and designer, so I do all my carousels and because I have some design skills, I can do carousels that look better than the average carousel. So people are more likely to like them. So
0: I actually think it's so funny that you said that cuz I think at different stages on platforms like there's different ways to grow. Like when I started off on LinkedIn, the way I started growing at least like the first like thousand, a couple thousand, is I would go look at all the comments and I was like, okay, let's send this connector request to all these comments because they're active on LinkedIn and they're 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 most if they're active on linkedin they might come to like my post if i post so i did that at the beginning but like i wouldn't recommend doing that now and i've been doing it for a long time but i still recommend people be active in communities at the beginning because oh totally the unscalable things at the beginning scale you which yeah it's i mean as
1: you said for you to do it at the hundred and something thousand followers it's like you sending a connection request or commenting on people's comments so that they're more likely to click on your is, you know, that'd be a complete waste of your time because you could post something that, you know, gets you a thousand followers. Whereas somebody who's got 200 followers, you know, they're going to post something and nobody's going to see it because maybe those 200 followers are like friends they had been connected with that never opened mm-hmm. LinkedIn. So in that sense, yes, they should do what you just said, you know, find, You know, the people that are actively commenting on, say, somebody like Justin Welsh, they're probably actively trying to grow their LinkedIn. And if they get a connection request, they are probably lovingly accept it because it means they just got another follower, right? And there's a part of the LinkedIn algorithm that somebody who's a a new connection is more likely to see your content for the next week or two weeks. So they'll lovingly accept it um, because they're active and they're trying to grow. So your strategy of going out and connecting with those active people makes a lot of sense regardless of their, their account size. But, you know, once you get into the, the thousands or 10 thousands, it's like, there's no no point in you doing that anymore. You should instead talk to other people who have large audiences and collaborate and work together or just get right, better and better content that goes viral more often.
0: At the beginning it's like, okay, let's do all the unscalable things. Yep put out a lot of content to see what works, let's do the connection requests, let's comment on every single post I can. Once you start getting more, then it's it's more focusing on how great your content is, how could I get more views of my content? So there's different like phases of it. There.
1: There's a sad part of human nature and it's essentially like social proof or whatever, where your follower count is like kind of the ultimate social proof. So if I see a post from somebody and then I click on their profile and I see that they've got five hundred thousand followers, I might just automatically follow because like, oh, shoot, they must they must be good. I don't know. Whereas I, if I see an amazing thing posted by somebody who's got two hundred followers and I and I see that they have two hundred followers, I might go like, oh, maybe they, you know, this is probably their first post. I don't know if they're ever gonna post again. Like, yeah, whatever. So there's early on there's kind of this like. Even if they're not necessarily the best, or they're not your target audience, or whatever, it's almost like okay, just get to something where if somebody hits your account, they you know take you somewhat seriously. And um, you know, I think there's like some milestones where people uh, immediately start interpreting you differently. I think ten thousand is kind of one barrier. You know, hundred thousand is like as soon as you're over hundred thousand, I think people are like like oh, this guy's a thing. Ten thousand is like okay, yeah. and you know if you're below a thousand, you're like I don't know if this person even uses it or or what.
0: So, It's social proof and credibility, I think those yeah. are two. And that's what one thing we're going back to, like the founder thing is, even though it seems maybe you you get building ego and stuff like that, but like if someone sees a founder with fifty thousand to a hundred thousand followers versus a founder with three hundred followers, I think. Just in the human psychology, you'll be like, oh, that person's more credible than that person, no matter what you
1: do. And you're probably going to take their business more seriously, too, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, that person might be way worse at that running a business or they do worse work. It's it's just you're inherently going to like you're going to assume Sahil's company is going to be better than his ghostwriting agency is going to be better than a ghostwriter person that has a thousand. I actually like find it insane when I see people who claim to be amazing ghostwriters and then they personally have 500 followers. It's like if you were actually an amazing person at growing an audience, then why don't you have a large audience yourself? So.
0: Yeah. Like at least at least like show me a, a burner account that you have. That is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Is there, yeah. Is there some sort of weird cat meme account that you're able to grow? Otherwise it's just like, okay, you're really trying to fake it till you make it. What is a marketing hill you would dial? So there's, there's this book called Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. And it's, it's essentially just trying to convince you that doing the logical thing is a stupid idea. Cause if, if every company tries to do the maximally logical thing to do, then every company is going to do the exact same thing. And it's kind of a problem when you have larger companies that he likes to say, you'll never get fired for making a logical decision, or you'll never get fired for making a logical suggestion. Whereas you would if it's like, hey, what happens if we just stuff these ads full of cute bunnies? They may be like, you're an idiot. Why would... But people think bunnies are cute. And none of the other people in the, you know, you sell deep learning machines, you sell computers for AI and um, you know, no other company in that thing stuffs bunnies into their ads. So it's going to stand out. So it's more, it's might actually perform way better. So, but if you were to bring that up at that meeting, people might think you're insane. So essentially it's just throw out the idea of just, you need to do the logical thing and instead of explore completely logical options. And, you know, for example, he uses things where they were trying to increase donations to a certain thing and they did four different uh things one they just they sent a thing that said uh if you donate the government will double your your contribution uh they did another one where the paper was heavier it was just a thicker weight they did another one that said that this letter was donated like delivered to your door by a volunteer manually and another one where instead of it opening at the top uh, of the envelope it opened on the side where they never do. And you would think okay, the one that would be most logical for people to donate on is the one where their money gets maximized. So it should be the one where they get a, a tax credit where the government doubles it. But the one that actually did the best was the one where the the slit on the envelope was on the side. Just cuz it stood out and they've never seen an envelope like that, so they're more likely to open it and read it. The the heaviness of the thing probably made it feel more substantial. There's a psychological bias that things that feel heavier or weightier uh, feel more important. And the other one is kind of the labor illusion, so something or some sort of reciprocity. Somebody put in effort to do this thing and deliver it to your door, so you feel somewhat bad, or you need to, you want to reciprocate for their effort, or the thing that took effort must be worth worthwhile. So those three. Seemingly illogical things from the start are ultimately probably better, but there's kind of a culture where it's we disincentivize people from making those uh, suggestions.
0: I had a podcast with Rory, and one of the reasons he said uh, it's happened in marketing a lot is because marketing used to be a commission based job, like those commission based jobs. So like the risk to reward factor was like, okay, right. if I make a bigger risk, I can get paid out. More. But now like, right. you get a set salary. So like, and there's some companies is a variable, but the variable long enough to say, I'm willing to like go ham and you get a 10 X idea versus like a two X idea. So right, um, there's also that as it. that's why I like invest in bankers, have more like they're willing to risk it all because the upside is way higher where marketing is like the upside is two X, but the downside is I get fired. So it's like, I rather just do the the logical choice because the firing seems not good. Yeah. I mean, if you're not going
1: to win the upside, then you might as well just do the thing that's most likely to keep your salary. I think one of the best lessons that Warren Buffett often talks about is just like, the incentivization is kind of like the most important part of anything. Uh, I even saw a thing where he was talking about. It's like, yeah, if we want the government to not have a deficit, if you just built it into the incentives of the uh, of the politicians, where if they ever were ever in a deficit, they would be kicked out the next year, then you know the, the the budget would immediately be balanced and would forever. So yeah, in in that case, it's like if people have all the upside they're going to try whatever they can to try to get there's going to be a percentage of people who are going to think weird and risk it big but yeah if, if you don't incentivize properly or you're just going to get people who are not crazy wild thinkers because those those people like that like to make big bets aren't going to just take the the standard salary job they're going to go build their own thing they're going to find a sales commission job or or something so yeah incentives are the
0: I like what Rory said, also says. Like it's easier to like justify things up front than justify it later, and that's right. like also the problem. It's easy to be, pull data and be like, "Oh, this is the right thing to do," versus like later showing like this was the right thing to, to do. do, like for the hypothesis. So. Right. He
1: he likes to say that the data represents the past, not the present to the future. All data just is a reflection of the past which I think is quite interesting.
0: I want to also lastly give you time to where people could find you, follow you, follow demand curve, follow what you're doing. Yeah. It's, um, I'm most active on LinkedIn, Neil O'Grady.
1: I'm Irish, so it's N-E-A-L and then demandcurve.com, bellcurve.com. The the whole story behind those is that my co-founder had been buying and selling domain names since he was a child. And he happened to have demand curve and bell curve. And we just went through his list of domain names and said, yeah, that looks cool. Let's just use that. So it's kind of funny, for our logo, we were thinking demand curve, the actual like graph kind of looks like you're driving a company into the ground because it slopes downwards. And the one where it's like a nice hockey stick is actually the supply curve. So we're like, Hmm, we also can't use that one. So (laughs) we have to, we have to kind of get creative, but yeah. Can you find me on LinkedIn or demandcurb.com or MelCurb.com.
0: It's also a good story that like markers always overthink, okay, I'm gonna do the, the name matters so much, but sometimes it's just like you it's what you make the name, and sometimes it's the best sounding name. Like she you could have had a sto- a cool story that like, oh demandcurve curve had this bagger, but it's like I have two domains that sound good.
1: We, yeah, we we just happen to own them we randomly chose bell curve first, even though demand curve probably would have made sense. Yeah, I, I remember sending Lenny, Lenny Roshitsky this thing one time, and I was just like, it's absolutely insane to me that you have 400,000 subscribers and you have one of the top podcasts, and it's literally just Lenny's newsletter and Lenny's podcast. You know, it doesn't even say that it's for product managers, it's it's just his name. And it yeah, it just really goes to show that it, You know, probably doesn't matter. It's it's not the most important thing. You just don't want a name that's impossible to spell. You know, I think startups did a horrible thing by being clever with their names and making them impossible to spell or or things like that. But you know, you don't have to overcomplicate it.
0: I mean, I talked to Dave Guerra about this, but there's two ways to like make a name. It's like one. Just make it dead obvious of what the thing is, like the marketing line. It was like okay, right. Um, right? Or you become a like have something where but where marketing brand comes in, like Nike. I mean, they mm-hmm. made it Nike. Nike, and they, or like right. Airbnb, they have like you know, they have a story. They have stories behind it that made what they are. And they didn't. So you can either have a name or dead on. What what do you do right. or your marketing it relies on the storytelling aspect of like what that name is yeah
1: this has been great. yeah, it has I'm, I'm glad I uh, finally got my ass on here.
0: and everybody, one of the four other newsletters I read the man curve, so you go to the it. Uh, thank you. appreciate that uh, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you Daniel. thanks so much for listening.